Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. welcome our listeners to this episode of The American Idea. Today we're going to be talking about one of the greatest and most important battles in the history of the United States, the Battle of Gettysburg, fought on July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of 1863 in the middle of our Civil War. We'll be joined for that conversation today by an old friend, a personal friend, and a great old friend of Ashbrook, Professor Chris Burkett. Many of you know Chris from his work uh, in our Ashbrook student programs, helping to guide the Ashbrook Scholar Program, work with Ashbrook's teacher programs in our Master of Arts in American History and Government, in our Teaching American History seminars. And of course, he has been a frequent guest and always a great guest here on our podcast, The American Idea. Chris received his bachelor's degree here at Ashland University. Uh, he was, I think, a double major in art and history. I always like to point that out because he yeah. has a great talent for art. <laughs> and I think it may influence even his uh, the subtlety of his thinking in history. Uh, and he also uh, has his master's and PhD from the University of Dallas. Chris has been a member uh, of the faculty here at Ashton University in the Department of History and Political Science for many years. He has published a number of interesting things, and I always like to highlight his editing of our wonderful 50 Core American Documents book. Uh, it is a terrific volume. Let me encourage very strongly all of our listeners, if you don't have a copy, go get a copy. You can find it on our website. I'm sure you can find it on online booksellers, or you can just send us a note and request it. Again, that's 50 Core American Documents edited by Pr Professor Christopher Burkett. It is essential reading for students, teachers, and citizens. If you have a teacher in your life, children, grandchildren, or just yourself and friends, get a copy of it. It's the great American documents from, I think it starts with the Declaration of Independence and goes all the way through Ronald Reagan's speech in 1964, A Time for Choosing. Terrific volume, required reading if we're going to revive these principles of America in our hearts and minds. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's always a pleasure to have a conversation with you, and I'm especially grateful to be part of this great uh, this project uh, that you're that you're doing here for for Americans and the American idea. So, thank you, Gettysburg. Gettysburg. If there is one battle of the Civil War that probably everybody's heard of, it's Gettysburg. Um, I think if those who have been to Gettysburg. Um, National Park and to the battlefield. Uh, it's moving. It's very powerful. Um, it's sweeping in its scope and size. I think a lot of people have heard of Gettysburg. Hopefully some have experienced it personally, but probably not all of our listeners know a lot about the battle itself, the, con the, the situation before the battle, during the battle, and then after the battle. And I, I, if you could take us back to 1863, or maybe even a little bit before, 
what's happening in the American Civil War that makes the Battle of Gettysburg such an important event? Yeah, uh, boy, I just, uh, as a matter of fact, I, I know you know this, I just got back uh, from a, a two-day trip to Gettysburg with some Ashbrook scholars, our undergraduate students here. I was fortunate to be part of this trip that Ashbrook does every year for freshmen, um, college students. And we spent two days at the at the battlefield. And so it's fresh in my mind. And and uh, um, every time I go, uh, I, I, I sort of, you know, have these moments of, of weeping when I think about the events that took place at this battlefield field over the span of three days in July. It's a beautiful place. If you haven't been there, anybody who's listening, I can't recommend strongly enough that you go here. It, it is um, preserved so well. You can visualize once you once you once you sort of know what was going on in the three days of the battle, you can actually visualize it so well because of the way the battlefield has been preserved. But um, it's it's such an important battle, Jeff, as you say, uh, for Primarily, I think, for morale reasons, um, the um, Union forces had been struggling with some, let's just say, leadership issues. Uh, uh, President Lincoln went through a series of generals that didn't produce the results he was looking for. Um, it's it's always interesting to me how the, the Confederate generals, because they, they um, knew that they were sort of outnumbered and given their strategic goals, they were willing to take much more, many more risks. Uh, and they relied on on um, on battlefield uh, decisions, strategic and, and and tactical changes to win their victories. The Union generals tended to play it much more safe, and as a result, they lost quite a few battles. So in 1863, um, things aren't looking that great for the Union forces in in sort of the Eastern Theater um, in, in Virginia. Uh, the Union forces earlier that year, or just just before Gettysburg, in fact, are coming off of a major defeat at Chancellorsville. And this, in fact, um, is really demoralizing uh, recruiting efforts for the Union Army, but it's emboldened General Lee to take his army into the north. And in fact, they crossed through Maryland into Pennsylvania in June um, of, of 1863, thinking that this is sort of going to be the last blow. All they need to do is um, uh, their goal is to, to sort of surround Harrisburg and Pennsylvania. Um, and then, and then, you know, sort of offered terms of negotiation to end the war with with Lincoln. And the idea here is Lee believes that if they can accomplish that, it will so demoralize people in the North that they'll they'll be willing to come to the table, and this will end the war. So things are at a kind of low, a real low for for Lincoln and the and the Union forces just before uh, the Battle of Gettysburg. So what's been happening, as you say, the Union morale is low, at least in the East. In the West, uh, we we did a podcast episode with Professor Andrew Lang of Mississippi State University on the Battle of Vicksburg, uh, which happened at almost exactly the same time as the Battle of Gettysburg. Of course, Vicksburg, a town on the Mississippi River, uh, and pivotal pivotal in a military and strategic way to the Confederate efforts. Um, Andy made the interesting argument to me that. Vicksburg and Gettysburg are often remembered together as two of the most important battles. But in fact, Vicksburg was really the important battle yeah. because, <laughs> because the Union victory there cut the Confederacy in two, west of the Mississippi and east of the Mississippi, and gave the Union uh, complete control of the Mississippi River. Uh, he right. said the significance of Gettysburg has been vastly overestimated. Uh, do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I do. I, I agree entirely. I, uh, I know Andy is very, he's very good on this. Um, and I think he's got a great point here in terms of 
winning the war or or bringing about the end of the war um, more quickly, Vicksburg is certainly strategically a much more important battle for the reasons that, that you mentioned. Uh, Gettysburg is important though, more for a morale boost. And again, um, I don't wanna sort of, have to sort of skip to the end here in a way, but we'll circle back. Um, Gettysburg, what, if you think about what Gettysburg accomplishes, it turns back a, a, a Confederate invasion of the North. Now it's true that from that point forward, Lee's forces in the East and in, in, in Virginia are sort of on the run. And it's a matter of time. It's gonna take another couple of, almost two years for, for the war to end in Virginia, but it, it does sort of move the war in that direction. But, but the immediate effect of the Battle of Gettysburg is um, the Union forces win, they turn back uh, Lee's invasion of the North, but Lincoln, by the way, is not very happy with the the uh, follow-up efforts uh, of the Union forces after the Battle of Gettysburg, because he thought that if if uh, if General Meade, George Meade, had acted quickly enough, he could actually have cut Lee off and prevented him from retreating, and thus brought about the end of the war much more quickly. So. In a certain sense, it's a Union victory at Gettysburg in that it repels a Confederate invasion of the North, but it's also a, a kind of failure in that it, it didn't, at least from Lincoln's perspective, that it didn't really do that much to bring about the more immediate end of the war. Vicksburg is a much more strategically important battle for those reasons. You mentioned Lincoln and his um, views as Commander-in-Chief. How had Lincoln, before we get to the particulars of the battle, which of course are important, tell us a little bit and our listeners, they think of Abraham Lincoln as a great president, as a great orator, a great giver of speeches. Um, they think of him as a profoundly thoughtful person uh, and a great student of the American founding. How had Lincoln's, how had he been conducting himself as commander in chief? And I'm thinking in particular here, not just of military and strategic decisions, but of his understanding of the conduct of the war up until we get to the point of July 1863? Oh, that's a great question. And again, I think this, this question actually is really good because it'll also help us understand the other significance of the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, again, it's a, it's a morale boost in the, insofar as it's a Union victory, but, but Gettysburg is important because I think it allows Lincoln to, to continue to work toward, I think his two goals, as commander in chief, as president and commander in chief of the war. So I'm gonna backtrack just a little bit to set this up if you don't mind. I'm gonna go all the way back to 1861 before Lincoln is inaugurated as president. And he gives a speech in Philadelphia in front of the state house, what we now call Independence Hall, in which he says, I never had a feeling politically that didn't, um, that didn't arise from the sentiments expressed in the Declaration of Independence. And uh, and I think his war strategy actually plays this out. So what do I mean by that? Well, you know, it, it, when you think of Lincoln's conduct as um, as commander in chief during the war, or the rebellion, as he called it, um, you have to think of Lincoln in, as wearing sort of two hats. There's Lincoln, the man, the the, the 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 citizen, the human being who who deeply believes that slavery is wrong and would love nothing more than to see slavery end before the end of the war. But then there's Lincoln, the president, who has taken an oath to follow the Constitution, and his primary job is as commander-in-chief to, to put down the rebellion or end the war, right? So Lincoln has these two goals that he would like to see accomplished. He's got to do everything he can to end the war and put down the rebellion. He has an obligation, a constitutional obligation to do that. 
So he's doing things, working with generals and giving them, helping them formulate overall strategies that will help end that war, right? That will, will end the rebellion and, and, and bring about the end of the war. And to do that, he knows he's got to cut off um, supplies to the South. He's got, he's got to cut off the ability of the South to the Confederate States to, um, to, to conduct trade with foreign nations, especially Great Britain. So Lincoln uh, immediately implements a, a, um, a naval blockade of southern ports. And then, of course, eventually you get Grant, uh, you know, winning victories like at Vicksburg and others in the Western theater. So, um, so Lincoln is doing those things necessary as commander-in-chief to, to eventually bring the war to an end. But I think what's often overlooked is how he is also conducting the war so that hopefully sort of coterminous with the end of the war, we'll, we'll, we'll also see the end of slavery. So Lincoln knows that he has to keep the border states, right? So-called border states, Delaware, uh, Maryland, the Western part of Virginia, Kentucky and Missouri. He's got to keep them on the Union side. To lose Kentucky is to lose the war, right? Problem is they have slavery. So what do you do? You've got to keep them, you know, fighting for the Union. Um, but Lincoln would like to see slavery end, especially in those border states. So he, he initially, um, uh, you know, launches a program of compensated emancipation, tries to get Congress to go along with this so that slave owners in those border states would be paid to free their slaves. That doesn't go anywhere. Uh, it doesn't work. But, but I, again, I think it kind of reveals how Lincoln is trying to both win the war and end slavery So insofar as he's sort of constitutionally allowed to do this sort of, sort of simultaneously. So if I can just throw out one more point, so just another example, um, Lincoln is often criticized as commander in chief for authorizing his generals to suspend the writ of habeas corpus, right? And he does this and several of his generals will, will do that and they will also confiscate and emancipate slaves under their authority, right, to do this. And quite often Lincoln will, will, will retract or overturn their decisions to emancipate slaves, these generals who had conquered parts of the South, right? And he's often criticized for this. And some scholars have said, well, this is this shows that Lincoln didn't really care about any slavery. I think it shows the opposite. I think that it shows Lincoln knew that there are that there are limits, there's sort of prudent limits to what you can do with regard to, to emancipating slaves and ending them. You want to accomplish that, but you have to do it in a way that won't at the same time cost you know victory in the war or lead to losing the war, right? Because again. You got to keep the border states. You got to keep those slave states, Kentucky and others, right, with the Union. So this has to be done very, very carefully. I'm sorry, Jeff. You look like you wanted to. Jump no, it up. sounds like a very delicate balance. Um, a very delicate balance. And I'm thinking in particular, you mentioned George Meade, who is the commander of Union forces at Gettysburg. Um, you mentioned U.S. Grant, who at this time is in the Western Theater, places like at Vicksburg. Um, right. Tell us a little bit more about Lincoln's generals. I'm thinking again in generals in the East, um, because if Lincoln is trying to accomplish these twin aims of holding the Union together by defeating the rebellion, but in that moment simultaneously trying to get rid of slavery as much as he constitutionally can, which ultimately, of course, is the 13th Amendment, right? As he called it, the King's Cure. But he's still trying to work that. Does he have generals? who understand that, and do they conduct the war um, in accordance with those aims, or does he have generals who are 
all in favor of putting down the rebellion but don't care about slavery or all about abolitionism and don't really care about winning the war where where is he with a general like George Meade or other generals that he's got to rely on in the east yeah that's a, another great question so there are some of his generals so General Butler and others who famously um when they're given the the, the green light to suspend the writ of habeas corpus in parts of the south that they've sort of you know reclaimed um they will go ahead and they will uh, issue emancipation proclamations or many emancipation proclamations liberating slaves. And they will do some of these generals will do so on the grounds that that's that's, you know, the right and just thing to do, but also that it's necessary to win the war. And, and again, Lincoln will sometimes tell those generals, no, you don't have the constitutional authority to do that, because at that point, some of these issues or um, these, these um, decisions by his generals were done in 1862. Prior to the, you know, the, the big emancipation proclamation that we know comes in fall of 1862 and then January 1st of 1863. But, but a lot of his generals were, were freeing slaves and Lincoln would, would, uh, would overturn those decisions on the grounds, publicly on the grounds, that, that, that it really was not a, a military necessity at that time to do that. Thinking again that the only, the only reason, the only justifiable grounds for for emancipating slaves at this point by generals was it's 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 necessary for purposes of winning the war and lincoln argued at this point that was not necessary now this might be a little controversial but i also think i think that's one reason lincoln gave but i think it's in the back of his mind he's always thinking of the effect that these sorts of decisions by his generals will have on the states like kentucky and maryland and delaware and missouri right if they see these union generals going around liberating slaves they start thinking to themselves, wow, this is no longer a war to save the Union. This is a war for, for emancipation. We're out. There's always that threat, Lincoln thought, that he would lose those border states if they believed the war was turning into a war to end slavery. So Lincoln had to be very careful about, um, about this business of allowing his generals to emancipate slaves. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to take a moment and ask you to learn a little more about the Ashbrook Center and how you can help us continue our work with teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chad Kiefer, Director of Philanthropy and Strategic Partnerships here at Ashbrook. At its heart, America's story is about the lives of patriots who have given their last full measure of devotion to preserve and protect what it means to be an American. But the tragic truth is that the American story is being rewritten as one of oppression and despair. Back in 1776, the founders took a chance when they created a new government built on principles of liberty. They took a chance on America. Now I'm challenging you to do the same. Your gift to Ashbrook today reaches students, teachers, and citizens across the country, helping them to understand why America is worthy of their devotion. With so many forces eroding our history and taking away from our principles, isn't it time we give America a chance? Your investment is encouraged now more than ever. Please visit us today at ashbrook.org backslash support. So Lincoln's conduct until 1863, as you say, is guided by these twin principles. We're, the Union is having great success in the West, or at least culminating in the Battle of, of Vicksburg. In the East, right. there's been frustration. Lee crosses the Mason-Dixon line, invades Pennsylvania, hopes, as you said, strategically hopes that this will, not that he's going to take over and occupy the North, but that it defeats Union morale such 
that the northern the people of the union are willing to sue for peace right that's yeah. his that's his sort of limit limited but very significant political aim um the battle itself from my understanding of it it almost start it starts as almost an accidental battle on in the late uh, late june or july 1st of 1863 yeah, it, yeah, it it was. It weren't uh, both sides weren't quite sure where that battle was going to take place. In the sort of fog of war, it's hard to know where you know the other side is, where their forces are. Um, General George Meade, by the way, had only been appointed commander of the Army of the Potomac two days before the battle. Um, there was some uh, decision that was made. It was actually. Um, was hoped that uh, General John Reynolds uh, of the Union forces would take that post, and he he declined, uh, not so respectfully, uh, because he didn't like dealing with the uh, bureaucrats in Washington. Um, so the the command went to George Meade, and he's far behind, coming up um, from the south, uh, trying to catch up to Lee's forces, but they're not quite sure where each side is at. So Lee again is trying to work his way over to Harrisburg. By the way, uh, Jeff, on your point about the strategy that Lee is undertaking here. Uh, Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, already had written out his demands <laughs> that were to be telegraphed to, to Lincoln as soon as he got word that Lee had reached Harrisburg. That's how confident he was that this strategy was going to work. Wow. Okay. Okay. But, okay. but so Meade is trying to catch up. Now, there's an advanced detachment of cavalry under the command of John Buford, Union cavalry, that arrives in Gettysburg and he... Um, is uh, through his sort of scouts that are out there, he discovers that he has almost come up against the rear uh, guard of the Confederate forces moving toward Harrisburg. And so there's a kind of accidental sort of bumping into each other. Some This is late June, as you said, June, June 29th, June 30th. Uh, some Confederate forces, you know, turn around and start shooting. They're not sure if they should go on or come back. Uh, John Buford's not sure if the Confederates are going to keep marching or come back, but just to be safe, he sets up defensive positions just northwest of the town of Gettysburg. And fortunately, he did because it very quickly becomes clear uh, on the night before July 1st that this is where the battle is going to take place. So General, um, um, uh, I think it's General Hill's forces of the Confederate troops are are, are turning around and, and marching en masse back to, to Gettysburg. So John Buford is there first. He, he, he is the reason the battle takes place there. And he very quickly sort of sets up, you know, defensive lines to, that, that, uh, that become the first line of skirmishes on the morning of July 1st. So take us back to July 1st. What happens on that first day of the battle? Yeah, most of the fighting that day at Gettysburg is northwest of the city. And again, I was just there and you can see through the monuments and some of the the fortifications, uh, very quick and rudimentary sort of uh, fencing and things that are thrown up where the battles take place. Um, it's a it's a hard fought battle that first day, and it's essentially because all the all you have are uh, the Union cavalry here under under General Buford, really, uh, really doing the brunt of the fighting. Uh, General uh, John Reynolds, uh, the Union general, does show up that day, and he is to take command. Um, of the forces. He is in, way in advance of General Meade. Meade is still catching up with the main body of troops. Uh, General Reynolds shows up and takes command, and there's heavy fighting northwest of the city. And um, and General Reynolds is killed the first day of battle. So uh, the first day of battle is, um, is actually, I think, looking good for the Confederate forces. Uh, 
they they seem to be pushing the union forces back and so with with reynolds death on the at the end of day one um general uh, buford uh, decides that it's best to sort of fall back and take up defensive positions south of gettysburg so it looks like the union like the confederates have pushed the union forces back in fact it's a very thoughtful tactical um fallback on the part of the union forces to the high ground just south of the town um uh, starting with um, cemetery hill uh, which is where gettysburg national cemetery is by the way today uh, and then culps hill so just sort of southeast south and east of gettysburg are these two important hills and the Union forces fall back and occupy the high ground, which is the absolute right move for them to make. So it's interesting, right? Because our listeners, if they can picture this on a map, as you said, the Confederate forces are north of the Union forces heading north toward Harrisburg and the Union forces are trying to catch up with them from the south and right. that they do catch up with them. And then as you say, the Confederate forces start to turn and head back south to Gettysburg while the main Union forces are coming north. That first day, the Confederates push and the Union forces fall back strategically. What about the next day, July 2nd? Yeah, July 2nd. So July 2nd is the day when the real hero of Gettysburg, if I can say this, Winfield Scott Hancock uh, takes over and he sets up, um, uh, now that the Union forces have the high ground in Culps Hill and Cemetery Hill, he forms this famous Union line that's known as the fish hook. Again, it's kind of hard to visualize without a map. So I don't know if I'm doing it the right way on the screen or not, but. <laughs> But it, um, Union forces in the north wrap around these two hills, Cemetery Hill and Culp's Hill to the east. And then the rest of the Union forces line up along what's called um, Cemetery Ridge. And the, the sort of the southern tip of that ridge ends up around Little Round Top. So day two is where some important events or some, some important moments take place in the battle because of one, the, so by the way, the Union forces have done exactly the right thing. They formed their lines properly. They've got the high ground, but there's one general in particular, I don't want to overdo this, but there's General Dan uh, Sickles of the Union forces, who is a sort of, you know, well-known politician who's now in charge of, um, who's now uh, in charge of some uh, troops uh, as a general here at uh, at Gettysburg Union troops, and he's he has the left flank, sort of the southern flank of the Union forces, and the Confederate forces are lined up across the field, about uh, three quarters of a mile away, on what's called Seminary Ridge. But Dan Sickles, General Sickles, has the southern flank protected. He doesn't like where he's at. He can't see what's going on, so he decides to move his entire force forward a few hundred yards so he can get a better view of what the Confederates are doing. The problem is he leaves the Union southern flank entirely exposed. General Longstreet of the, of the, of the Confederate forces takes advantage of that uh, and tries to outflank him to the south. And by the way, Sickles' troop, his men are just mowed down. I mean, they, they pay the price for that bad move that he made. And play, some people may have heard of the Peach Orchard. Uh, Confederate forces occupy what's called the Devil's Den, which gives them sort of, you know, a great uh, vantage point for shooting at, um, at Union forces uh, at, at the end of their line. But Sickles' troops pay the price. The problem is now uh, Longstreet in, is trying to outflank Union forces on the south. And Winfield Scott Hancock, again, is, is just this great commander at the battle. He has the presence of mind to know when and where to shift troops where they're needed. So he has to shift, shift troops around to the east 
because there's a major battle taking place at Culp's Hill, but he also realizes that the southern flank is exposed. So it falls on uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain uh, and others. Uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, uh, professor of rhetoric <laughs> at Bowdoin College, uh, who who um, wanted to to get into the fight. He 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 uh, his um, his college wouldn't let him go, so he applied for a sabbatical. And instead of going to Europe to, to do research, he, he joined the army. Uh, so he's there leading the 20th Maine. Yeah, a truly and, useful professor, right? But yeah, finally, <laughs> a useful professor. Anyway, sorry, I shouldn't say that. But um, so it falls on him and a, and a group of about 50 of his men or so, his brothers there. There's, they have to, to shift down to Little Round Top and, and stop a Confederate outflanking maneuver made up mostly of Alabama and Texans, Alabama men and Texan men. And uh, and they fight them off in a really brief but bloody uh, fight uh, that lead it ends up by the way in a, in a bayonet charge. Uh, a lot of people are killed here, but but Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and the 20th Maine hold the, the the Union flank, and if they hadn't done that, it's very possible that that flank could have crumpled and that could have that could have ended the battle with the Confederate victory. So, very significant uh, moment there at the Battle of Little Round Top, which you can still visit and see today very well preserved. They're doing some work on it right now, but it's it's really worth the, the trip to see it. So so day two ends with um, uh, some really brave, heroic actions on the part of both sides, uh, but the Union lines hold. All right, then day three, July 3rd. July 3rd. So the fateful day, right? The last day of the battle. And uh, General Lee believes that, um, that because uh, General Winfield Scott Hancock has had to shift his forces around so much that his middle, uh, the middle of the, the Union line has been weakened, right? So he believes the Union forces have been stretched thin. And so he orders the famous charge that is known today primarily as Pickett's Charge, although there were other generals involved in this. But the, but the bulk of the men who would be on that charge and who would die on that charge were from, from General Pickett's brigade. Uh, by the way, uh, General uh, George Pickett, uh, fascinating side note, a uh, uh, very um, brave soldier. A lot of people may not know this, but he he and Abraham Lincoln were personal friends. And in fact, Lincoln was responsible for his um, getting into um, into the army, into uh, into West really? Point, I believe. And uh, and um, he was uh, he was a Confederate general, but he did not allow anybody to say anything bad about Lincoln in his presence, <laughs> which I find interesting. Wow. Anyway, <laughs> so it falls to this guy, General George Pickett, to to you know to to offer up the you know his brigade of men uh, to this charge. Um, Ultimately, really under the command of General James Longstreet, but but Pickett's brigade, his men made up the bulk of those who who made the charge. Again, it's it's a long walk across this open field. They give the order. They start advancing, and the um, the Union um, artillery is just just devastating. If you go there and, and see, I've walked the, the the route that they've taken several times, and if you can just imagine out of nowhere, cannonballs raking across your you know, the, the line of men in front of you and behind you, it's just withering fire from the Union artillery. Uh, and this is going on for, you know, 20 minutes as they're marching across this field in heavy uniforms. And they finally, some of them make it across the field and um, and they make it to what's known as the high water mark of the Confederacy, where a group of um, of Confederate soldiers do actually break through the Union lines, 
under the command of of General Scott, and uh, but they are they are captured or beaten back, and then and then the, you have this long retreat back. Um, there's this great story too, though, about one of the generals who was on the charge, uh, uh, Louis Armistead. He was a close personal friend of Union General Winfield Scott Hancock, and um, he made it to the to the other side. He made it to the Union lines, was mortally wounded, and his last words were, you know. Uh, is General Hancock around? I'd like to see him. And unfortunately, Hancock had well had had also been wounded and couldn't see him. But and and uh, Hancock survived, but Armistead died. And um, it was just a devastating, devastating um, end to the battle for the Confederacy. So I think sixty percent casualties among among Pickett's men. Uh, I think it was something like eight thousand casualties. Um, so, so after so after the collapse of Pickett's charge. What happens then uh, on either July 3rd or the next day, now that the battle seems to have been decided in the Union favor? Yeah, yeah, that evening Lee uh, orders a, a strategic retreat and they start to march south. And at that point, they've, I mean, the losses have been so devastating for them. Um, everybody knows it at this point. He has got to get back to Virginia to resupply and, and try to find more men. And so at this point, it's the it's sort of a race for him to get back into into Virginia where he can resupply. And um, General Meade um, would later, I mentioned this earlier, but General Meade would later receive a letter from Lincoln, first of all, congratulating him on the victory, but in the same letter, um, admonishing him for not acting quickly enough to cut Lee off and allowing him to retreat back into Virginia. And Meade's, Meade, again, I hesitate to say bad things about men who who do things that I myself couldn't do. I mean, he was a general, so I don't think I could do that. But it's it's probably true that Lee, I'm sorry, that Meade acted too cautiously and conservatively, um, and didn't act quickly enough to cut Lee off. There's it's very possible that he could have done that and ended the war much more quickly in the East. But so Gettysburg may not have been the single <clears throat> bloodiest day. In, in the Civil War, but over a period of three days, I think it's right to say it's the single bloodiest battle. Yes. How many troops were involved on both sides? And if you have a sense, what were the numbers of casualties? Yeah, 50,000 casualties over three days, which does make it the bloodiest battle. The bloodiest single day was at Antietam, but the bloodiest battle is, is Gettysburg, 50,000 casualties, about 23, I think, Union casualties, 23,000 Union casualties and 27,000 Confederate casualties. Wow. And wow. the Union had a larger, of course, more troops. So the percentage of casualties was much higher for the Confederate forces, which is why Lee at this point desperately needed to get back to Virginia, and, and so, which he does. But now, uh, um, not to shift gears here too much, but you mentioned earlier, of course, Grant is out in the West and he's winning. Um, Lincoln has been dealing with a series of, of, of sort of um, overly cautious generals in the East. It's shortly after Gettysburg that that Lee, I'm sorry, that President Lincoln will will appoint Grant in charge of of all the armies, and and Grant will come over and finish the job in in, in the East in Virginia, and, so, and really capitalize on this. So you mentioned all those casualties. Probably the other most um, famous thing about Gettysburg is the address that President Lincoln gives later when he comes back to Gettysburg on November 19th, 1863. So a number of months after the battle. The Gettysburg Address, which is given to dedicate a, the National Cemetery there for Union soldiers. Right. Um, in Lincoln's mind, 
What's the significance of the Battle of Gettysburg? Yeah, that's a great question. I, again, I think after Gettysburg, and he reveals this in a very subtle Lincolnian way in his Gettysburg Address, but after Gettysburg, I think Lincoln is able to be much more open about his hope that the war will not just save the Union, but will end slavery. And if you, again, one of the greatest speeches ever written, if not the greatest speech, in my opinion, the Gettysburg Address. Um, in the second paragraph, Lincoln talks about why he is there. Um, and I'll just read from it. He says, we are, we have uh, come to, we've, sorry, we are met on a great battlefield of this war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. And um, what he says that, what he's saying here is we are dedicating a cemetery, we're burying men who died that that nation might live. And that nation that he's referring to is the nation that he says was brought forth by our fathers in 1776 that was dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. So the men we're burying here at Gettysburg in the cemetery, Lincoln says, I'm paraphrasing, Lincoln says it much more beautifully than I can, right? But we're burying men here, and the reason these men died was to bring into being, maybe for the first time, that nation, a nation that is truly dedicated to all men being created equal. So again, he doesn't come right out and say, this is the purpose of this war is to end slavery. But I think he makes it clear in this speech and in subsequent speeches after Gettysburg that the goal is, of course, we've got to win the war. But if we can, any, any way that we can, if we can make this happen, we should strive to, to finish the work of ending slavery as well, right? So that this will not only be a war to, to save the Union, but to make it a Union worthy of the saving, as he will say in another speech. And hence, Lincoln, after the Battle of Gettysburg and in 1864, endorses and embraces the 13th Amendment to abolish slavery. Yeah. And then it, if you, again, then it becomes a race, right? Which will, I mean, can we end slavery through the 13th Amendment before the war ends? And that, that also affects Lincoln's war strategy moving forward. Chris, so. best books in your mind, you've studied the Battle of Gettysburg, you've studied Abraham Lincoln um, for a number of years. In your mind, for our listeners, what are some of the best books, movies, or TV shows that they could take a look at um, on Gettysburg, the Civil War, or Abraham Lincoln? Yeah, great. I'm happy to answer. That's a great question. I think uh, most people would say, a lot of people would say that um, one of the best books on Gettysburg is called Killer Angels by um, Michael Shara, S-H-A-A-R-A. -A -A. Um, it's a fantastic book written from, from the perspectives of the of the men who were there, including the Confederate generals and the Union generals, and especially um, uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Um, it's a fantastic book. It, it won the Pulitzer Prize. And the movie Gettysburg is based largely on this book. So uh, it's a good read, um, very insightful, and it gets the history right for the most part, I believe. So I really recommend that book as well. Uh, or the book And the film Gettysburg is, I think, pretty well done. His son wrote a book, it's not necessarily on Gettysburg, but it's sort of on the Civil War and how it leads up to Gettysburg. His son, uh, Jeff Shara, wrote a book called Gods and Generals, uh, which I also recommend. I think it's a good read. And it, it helps to set up 
how we end up at Gettysburg. Why are we there? How did these men come to be there and the positions that they're in? So uh, recommend that book as well. It was also made into a movie, which I think was pretty good. So uh, terrific recommendations. Chris, thanks for taking the time to be with us today to shed light on one of the most important moments in American history and really in helping us understand the meaning of the Civil War and ultimately, I, I suppose, America's principles themselves. Thank you for taking the time to join us on The American Idea. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.